So when you get these things, you hope someone will do you the favor of writing a bad paper. Uh, and Amia didn't do me that favor. So Amia puts together a defense of luminosity that I find uh, rather compelling. In fact, I find it so compelling, I have a hard time imagining that. Anti-luminosity. Right, right. Anti-luminosity. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, forget it. Uh, so, but I, I actually have a hard time believing people thought that these things would take down the anti-luminosity argument. Um, I realized one difference between the way I talk and the way she talks is I call them the Luminati, and you call them luminous. Um, so just so you know, here's a quick and dirty statement of the anti-luminosity argument. We could start with something like a margins for error principle. So if in, if in a case someone knows that P, P is going to be true in uh, a very similar case. Uh, so I have them alpha sub i and alpha. Uh, I sub plus one. And here we're referring to a case that I thought was going to be familiar because I thought you were going to go first. But this is the case that uh, Williamson describes in Knowledge and Its Limits, where we start out uh, where one feels very cold. And it's clearly a case in which it, one's cold. And then the temperature will change slowly over time so that at the end, uh, it feels quite hot. And of course, in that condition, insofar as it feels quite hot, one can't know that it feels cold. So uh, we can start out with the idea that at the beginning, in the, in the base case, uh, the relevant proposition P, it feels cold, is true. At the end, it's going to be false. And there's going to be very gradual changes throughout every millisecond. There's going to be just a tiny, 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 tiny change in the temperature. So if we suppose there's a margin for error principle that requires for knowing that P obtains that it's going to be true in a very similar case, like the next case in the series, and we stipulate that at the very beginning, uh, one feels cold, and at the very end, it's false that one feels cold. We can construct what looks like a pretty convincing argument against luminosity, which is uh, in your paper the claim something like, well, if P is going to be true in one case, say alpha sub i, uh, then S is going to know or be in a position to know that P is true in that case. So letting P be the proposition that one feels cold, we can stipulate that one does indeed feel very cold at the beginning. And also that one feels quite hot, and so it doesn't feel cold at the end. In other words, we can stipulate uh, in your paper this beginning and end. Uh, and by luminosity, if P is going to be true in the first case, then S will know that it's true in the first case. And so by beginning, uh, S knows that P is true in the first case. And by margin of error, P will be true in the next case. And so by luminosity, you'll know that it's true in the next case. And you can just run this over and over and over again until you get to the end. But of course, in the end, you would be knowing that it's cold when it's not cold. Uh, so there we go. That can't be right. So we can construct this very uh, seemingly plausible anti-luminosity argument. Now, since neither the, the stipulation that you're cold in the beginning or hot in the end is open to challenge, it seems like there's a plausible argument from a margin of error principle to luminosity. Now, the luminati, those who accept luminosity, they have to deny it looks like they use margin for error principles. Now, William, uh, Williamson offers a defense of margins for error principles. It appeals to a safety principle. Illuminati have to decide whether to reject all safety principles or instead reject safety-based defenses of margin for error principles. So according to one line of resistance, one's beliefs can constitute knowledge, even if they don't satisfy a safety principle. So the principle is really just a principle in name only. And according to another line of, of response, a belief must satisfy some safety principle but uh, in order to constitute knowledge, but it doesn't support uh, a version of the margin for error principle that supports anti-luminosity. Now, Amiya's focus on that second line of response to the anti-luminosity argument. Uh, for the purposes of our discussion, I think then we can assume that there's some safety condition on knowledge and ask whether there's any sound argument from a margins of error principle to against luminosity. Now, just a quick point about the dialectical situation. Uh, this comes up in a few points in her paper. I thought I would just mention this briefly. 
I think Amia has to be right about this. The Illuminati are going to have a very difficult time resisting the argument for a margin of error principle if they don't set their eyes on safety. I won't here argue that the safety principle is correct, um, but it does look like a lot of the putative cases of unsafe knowledge that you get in the literature don't seem to give us any reason to believe there are things like luminous conditions. At best, these cases seem to cut away one possible source of support for margin for error principles. And if someone offered an account of knowledge that conflicted with these margin of error principles and implied that it didn't matter whether there are nearby cases of error to whether you know in the case you're in, I think a lot of us would say that's just a counterexample to this terrible account of knowledge. And I think it would be a bit odd to defend, let's say, the luminosity of a condition like feeling cold or being in pain while insisting that it's perfectly possible to form beliefs about whether we're cold or in pain in the ways we actually do and easily be mistaken about whether these conditions obtain. Uh, it should be a consequence of the fact that a condition is luminous, I think, that it's the sort of thing that one couldn't easily be mistaken about. So I'd expect the Illuminati would concede that there aren't cases of unsafe luminous conditions, perhaps, uh, but wouldn't concede that there are cases of unsafe knowledge of luminous conditions. Uh, and so we should be able to take some version of the safety principle for granted and then ask uh, what the consequences are. So that's what we'll do. So Amia's paper can be divided into two parts. The first part, she defends a version of the anti-luminosity argument that appeals to a safety principle that she calls belief safety. S knows that P in a, in a case A, if in all sufficiently similar cases to A in which S believes P, P is true. And in the second, she defends a version of an anti-luminosity argument that appeals to uh, a confident safety principle. If S knows P and A with a degree of confidence C, then in any sufficiently similar case, call it A star, in which S has only slightly less confidence in A uh, than in A, uh, P will also be true. Oh, in my view, I think Amia successfully undermines the anti-anti-luminosity arguments in part one. I think I have some qualms about maybe the way she's formulated the defense, but there's no question to my mind the defense succeeds. In part two, I think the results are a bit mixed. I think that if Amia is going to concede too much to the Illuminati, then perhaps her defense in part two won't succeed. But I also think that she has the materials to explain why she needs to concede nothing at all to the Illuminati, and so her confidence in the anti-luminosity argument is perfectly apt. So just a quick uh, discussion of uh, belief safety. In her discussion of the argument from belief safety, Amia discusses a host of objections. Let me just quickly mention two. The first is one that's due to Vogel, who formulates a safety principle that's supposed to differ from belief safety. But crucially, it differs from belief safety only in cases in which uh, a relevant P is neither true nor false. So Vogel safety says something like, S knows that P in, in case alpha, only if in all sufficiently similar cases to alpha in which S believes P, it's not false that P, whereas the belief safety requires that it would be true that P. And of course, if P is always going to be either true or false, there's not going to be much difference between the principles. Well, none. Uh, so like Amia, I don't think there's just much to be gained by rejecting belief safety in favor of Vogel safety. I might not be entirely persuaded by some of the examples. I think she's right that phantom toll booth isn't a case of knowledge, and right this isn't a verdict that Vogel safety delivers. But it's not clear that Vogel safety delivers the wrong verdict because it doesn't. It's not clear what verdict the Vogel safety principle delivers about that case at all. It looks like Vogel safety is just efficiently silent on the example uh, because the case is a case of non-knowledge, not a case of knowledge in which there's a sufficiently similar case in which the relevant target proposition is both false and believed. Uh, what I don't see is how anyone could mount much of a defense of luminosity armed with something like Vogel safety. So suppose there is this case, we'll call it alpha 13, in which it's neither true nor false that one feels cold, even though there's a case, call it alpha 12, in which one does feel cold. I take it Vogel wants to consider seriously the following possibility, 
that in alpha 13, it's neither true nor false that one feels cold, and so one's not in a position to know that one feels cold. In alpha 12, one feels cold, and one's in a position to know that one feels cold. Now, meeting these conditions might be necessary for constructing a counterexample to belief safety that would suit the Illuminati's purposes. But the existence of such a pair of cases is supposed to be compatible with Vogel safety and show that one can consistently endorse this principle while rejecting margins for error principles. Uh, so margin of error principles tell us that if the second one's satisfied, uh, the first one isn't. So the margin for error principle will say uh, in, if in alpha 12, uh, one feels cold and one's in a position to know that one feels cold, uh, then it would, uh, sorry. Then uh, in alpha 13, it would be true uh, that one feels cold, which Vogel stipulates is not the case. So what's odd about this is while this approach might let us say that the sentence, it feels cold, expresses a proposition about a luminous condition, it looks like the sentence, it's true that it feels cold, wouldn't. So the upshot would be in the alpha 12, one knows that it feels cold, but one's not in a position to know that it's true that one feels cold. And it's hard to see what the Illuminati could possibly gain by dropping belief safety whilst retaining Vogel safety and taking that on as their view. So to defend the possibility of luminous conditions given these constraints, one has to argue that it's possible for propositions about such conditions to fail to be true without being false. And it's hard to see how this feature of these conditions could stand in any interesting explanatory connection to their status as luminous conditions. Amiya's discussion of Berker's work on luminosity, I think, quite vividly illustrates a lot of the problems with the, uh, the, the Illuminati's stance. It's hard to deny that the relevant conditions are conditions that we seem to be disposed to believe falsely, or if you prefer, believe untruly that they're present when they're not. And shouldn't this be an embarrassment for the Illuminati? So whereas Vogel argues that we can't derive margin from error principles from his formulation of safety, Berker seems to think that we can't derive margin of error principles from belief safety. So Berker rightly reminds us that belief safety is not itself a margin for error principle, because all the belief safety says, he says, is that one might know that P, uh, yeah, one might know that P in some case, despite its being false, that P in an extremely similar case, provided that one doesn't believe P in that case. So what Berker seeks to do is to find an ancillary principle that could connect belief safety to a margin for error principle, and then he finds all of the connecting principles to be problematic. So Amiya suggests we might be able to do the derivation from margin of, uh, to derive a margin of error principle from belief safety uh, by means of this thing that she calls uh, belief star. So if in a case alpha sub i, S believes P, there exists a sufficiently similar possible case, beta sub i plus one, in which S is the phenomenal duplicate of S in alpha sub i plus one, in which S believes P. So the thought here is something like this. If you had, you had your case alpha sub one, it's maybe the last case in which it's true that one feels cold. You could satisfy uh, a margin of error principle and not satisfy safety if one just simply stopped believing right at the cutoff point. But I take it Amiya's point is that, well, look, it's still gonna be a threat to your knowledge if you were disposed to believe believe past the cutoff point in some nearby possible case. That disposition is going to be enough to get you in trouble. The mere fact that by some miracle you stop believing right at the cutoff shouldn't, as it were, uh, show that you satisfy safety. 
So I think Amya is just right when she says this in, form, in, in for favor of her belief star. We don't just believe at random. Our mental lives are structured by certain dispositions. When we believe something in one set of circumstances, in very similar circumstances, we have a disposition to believe the same thing. And my belief star should be understood as encoding this empirical assumption that uh, a creature like us will share these dispositions. So this belief star is supposed to capture this kind of intuition about creatures like us and our dispositions. And I think it's one that lends, uh, it's supported by a further claim that she calls dogmatic dispositions. If in a case alpha S believes P, then for any very similar condition, S has some disposition to believe P. And the trouble with Berker's objection to belief star might be put like this. It's just quite simply hard to imagine who someone who feels cold in one case would stop believing, not just in the next case, but in all of the nearby possible cases. And it looks like that's what he needs to block the derivation from belief safety to margin of error. Now, one reason that I think that Berker's worry here about the derivation from safety to margin from error is just the height of silliness is that I don't think he thinks too much about uh, methods involved in belief fixation. And I think Amia has her finger on this and so rightly appeals to something like her docs dis to shore up the anti-luminosity argument. Uh, now, in various points in, in Knowledge and Its Limits, Williamson does remind us that when we're running through uh, the relevant thought experiments, thinking about margins for error and thinking about luminosity, we're not supposed to just introduce, introduce non-actual bizarre methods of belief fixation to try to deal with the relevant puzzling cases. We're supposed to think about creatures with something like the discriminatory capacities and abilities like ours. And it seems like somehow that's sort of been missed in this. Now, there's one thing that I'm, I'm not entirely clear about, which is whether Amia thinks that the resources for blocking Berker's style of, of objection are somehow implicit in what Williamson said or whether it needs to be added. But I don't think that's a really serious uh, issue. If there's no constitutive connection between our beliefs about, say, whether one feels cold and the conditions under which one feels cold, then I think there's no serious question that our methods of belief fixation will dispose us to believe what we actually do in highly similar non-actual cases, indistinguishable from the case we're in, in which we make mistakes. Uh, one way to talk of, one way to understand uh, the talk of what's, what sufficiently similar cases are, I think, is in terms of where you have the same or similar methods of belief fixation being operative. And of course, if you keep that kind of thing fixed, then docsdis looks like it's going to be overwhelmingly plausible and the derivation is going to work. Okay. So the second part of the paper, it looks like what we want to do, right, is to change one of the background assumptions. In the first part of the paper, we were going to concede that there was no constitutive connection between a luminous condition and a belief about that condition. So the condition could attain and you don't believe it, or you could believe it and it could fail to obtain. But we might change that, right? You might say, no, no, no. What, what if there's a, a constitutive connection between the relevant conditions and the relevant beliefs such that it's true that... If a subject has done everything she can to determine whether, say, she feels cold, then she believes she's cold if and only if she feels cold. We'll call this the constitutive connection. The question is, if we have this on the table, can we still derive a margin of error principle from safety? Okay, so to try to show that you can derive a margin for error principle without assuming the falsity of that constitutive connection, Amia introduces a, a second formulation of a a safety principle, in her paper she calls this confidence safety. If in alpha S knows with a degree of confidence C, then in any sufficiently similar case, call it A star, in which S has only slightly less confidence than in alpha P, 
still will be true. And she argues that uh, you can't use the constitutive connection to vindicate luminosity, but because we can use this formulation of the safety principle to defend the margin for error principle. Now, if we assume confident safety, then we might be able to imagine uh, the following pair of cases. So in the first case, call it A sub I, uh, P is true and S believes P to some degree, call it C. But in the next case, this is the first case in which P is false, call it alpha sub I plus one. Uh, P is false and she's only slightly less confident than in the other case but it's enough such that she doesn't believe P. Now, to try to derive a margin for error principle from confidence safety, we get a sort of confidence analog of belief star, called confidence star, that if in A sub I, S has degree of confidence C, the P, there is a sufficiently similar possible case, call it beta sub I plus one, in which S is the phenomenal cold feelings duplicate of S in uh, a sub i plus 1, in which S has at most slightly lower degree of confidence, call it C star, than P. Now, Berker thinks that there's a, a, an important question about this line of argument for margin of error principle. Suppose we say that one has a degree of confidence in P that's just enough to count as believing that P. And then suppose that if the subject's confidence dropped by just a tick, she wouldn't believe. So it's just the borderline case of belief. Any, I don't know what we call them, credon. One less credon, right? And you go from being a believer to not being a believer. Uh, if the subject's confidence dropped just by a tick, she wouldn't believe. Why should we say that a belief is unsafe just because there's a sufficiently similar case in which the relevant belief is false if we add the stipulation that in that case, the subject's degree of confidence dips below the level sufficient for belief? After all, they wouldn't make a mistake. So the thought was that in A sub I, they have the lowest possible degree of belief, and it's the last case in which P is true. And in the next case, P goes false, and their degree of confidence drops just below that of counting as a believer. Why then should the fact that they believed in this case, right at the edge, make their belief in that case unsafe? Uh, so to settle the dispute between Amia and the Illuminati, I think we need to settle some background questions about how we understand things like the relationship between degrees of belief, uh, degrees of confidence and belief. So let's just put in some background assumptions to try to, to try to get the picture clear. Let's say that a sufficiently high degree of confidence would be sufficient for belief. So we think that uh, belief is maybe just a degree of confidence over a threshold. And then... Let's, let's further say that uh, the, the level, that det the, the, the sort of the sufficiently level, will, the sufficiency level will remain fixed across cases. So you won't have example like two pairs of cases where in one case you have a degree of confidence that's at 0.7 and that's sufficient for belief. But in the next case you go to 0.69 and then that one somehow becomes sufficient. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay. This will go very quickly. Um, so... Okay, so with this in mind, right, what should we say about this, this case, this nearby case of error? Is this a case in which one easily could have had just a slightly higher degree of confidence, one that would have been sufficient for believing P in spite of the fact that P? Well, if we're assuming that there's some fixed point of confidence, such that the degree of confidence just below this 
is the first degree at which one stops believing P, then it looks like in light of the constitutive connection between the condition and the belief, it doesn't look like it's going to be easy for someone in this case to be mistaken. The thought here being that, of course, that in that case, it's just built into it that by virtue of the fact that one doesn't feel cold, it's guaranteed that one won't believe. And so it's just guaranteed that one's degree of confidence couldn't, as it were, get up to 0.7. That's all just fixed. Right? So there's not going to be a nearby case in which they're mistaken or they have an inappropriate degree of confidence. So you might think, okay, in that case, right, that just goes to show that their belief is safe in spite of the fact that it seems like they're violating a margin for error. Okay. Uh, but if we're assuming that there's some fixed point of confidence, such that the degree of confidence just below it uh, doesn't constitute belief, uh, it doesn't look like it'll be easy for someone to be mistaken. And if so, I suppose, then you could have some sympathy for Berker's complaint, but it's hard to have sympathy for the complaint in the context of a defense of luminosity, because we could, I don't see any good way to happily combine uh, your confidence star and confidence safety with this constitutive connection. Rather, I think what you should say, right, is insofar as you bind the confidence star, uh, this plausible claim about the degrees of confidence we're disposed to have just like, looks like really strong evidence against the idea that there's a constitutive connection between beliefs about feeling cold and feeling cold. So I think instead of saying, uh, you know, constructing a kind of argument for a margin of error principle that's compatible with the constitutive connection, it looks like you just have a very plausible assumption that shows the constitutive connection is totally implausible. So, you know, don't concede them anything. Uh, right. So this raises a, a sort of a tricky dialectical point that Amia discusses in her concluding section. I think she's right that the issue can't be settled in, by the Luminati simply by describing possible creatures for whom some conditions are luminous, right? Maybe you could get that on the cheap by arguing that there's God. See? So religious uh, content. There it is. My one sentence of religious content. Uh, but so what? Right? I mean, the possibility of conditions being luminous for God, where possibility here, of course, is understood quite, quite broadly because I'm an atheist, uh, wouldn't show that the luminous condition is anything more than a curiosity. And it surely wouldn't vindicate the idea that luminous conditions play any interesting role in any theory of human knowledge. Right? So that would, of course, vindicate nothing. So I do think that she's right, that if you build in some plausible assumptions about our dispositions to believe and our discriminatory capacities, that's all you need to get from safety to margins for error. So insofar as people think they can accept safety and avoid the margins for error thing, that seems deeply implausible. I'll stop talking. Okay. Okay. So thanks uh, very much to Clayton for those charitable, uh, very charitable comments. Um, And you know, thanks to the organizers uh, for inviting me. Um, I also don't have any theological content in the paper, so that I have a small apology for that. Although it did strike me when I was thinking about luminosity that you know, if you're committed, if you have certain kinds of theological or religious commitments and you think that there's heaven, then you might think that there's at least one non-trivial luminous condition for creatures like us. Probably not like me, but like <laughs> creatures like some of you, um, you know, namely the, the condition of, of being in heaven. Uh, because you might think that, you know, if you were in a condition that was that seemed pretty darn good, but you weren't sure whether it was heaven, well, then it's not heaven, right? Because heaven's got to be this, it's got to be KK land, um, <laughs> amongst other things. <laughs> so. Uh, so you, you might think that you, you are already committed to the view that there's at least one non-trivial uh, luminous condition. 
It's plausibly not absent luminous, but anyway. Um, okay, so for those of you who didn't read the paper, which I assume is most of you, um, I, I have on the handout a sort of brief kind of hyper-condensed cheat sheet um, for, for the paper and specifically the background that's needed, I think, to understand uh, the comments, Clayton's uh, comments. Um, so I'm not going to go through everything in detail, but it's there for your reference. Uh, the first section is sort of you know, just the description of the thought experiment called morning that's supposed to motivate uh, Tim's rejection of luminosity, the argument uh, with, these, with these four premises, luminosity, the margin for error premise, beginning and end, um, show why they run into contradiction. And the general thought is here that most defenders of the luminous, what they want to do is say, uh, actually, let's not reject luminosity. Let's reject uh, the margin for error pre premise, mar. And they have lots of different kinds of reasons for doing that. Some of them just want to reject safety out of hand. Um, safety is required to motivate uh, mar. But most of them want to say that they're happy to accept some version of safety, but they don't take it that safety uh, can motivate mar because the kind of extra uh, principles you need to derive safety from derive mar from safety are themselves uh, problematic. Okay, and then my paper, as uh, Clayton said correctly, sort of falls into two parts. The first part, I sort of defend mar on with the assumption that there is no constitutive connection between phenomenal conditions like feeling cold and beliefs about whether we're in those phenomenal con uh, conditions. In the second half, I loosen that, um, I loosen that assumption and defend Mar. Um, okay, so, right, and so the first defense of Mar uh, hmm. is in terms of belief safety together with bell star, right? So belief safety is just a very standard safety condition in terms of outright belief. And then bell star is this, what I want to say is this kind of empirical um, assumption about what creatures like us believe in, or rather have the disposition to believe in very similar cases. Belief safety and mar together will yield, sorry, belief safety and bell together will yield mar. Okay, so uh, Clayton has a couple of things to say about this. Uh, the first thing is he is worried about my response to Vogel, right? So Vogel says, actually, belief safety is no good. What we should go for instead is Vogel safety. The difference between Vogel safety and belief safety comes into play when, uh, if ever, um, it's neither true nor false that you're in, uh, that you're, say, feeling cold. And Vogel wants to say that Belief safety is too strong because it demands that there are, you can't have, for you to know, you can't have any uh, nearby non-true beliefs, or, you know, in similar conditions. And he wants to say, no, 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 all you need is uh, no nearby uh, false beliefs, right? So it's okay for there to be nearby cases in which you believe P, uh, although uh, it's neither true nor false that P. And so he motivates it by giving this umpire case. I'm not going to go through it, but you can read it on your handout. Um, and then I respond with these three other cases, one that I actually take from Vogel, Color Chip, and then also Phantom Tollbooth and Jack and Jill. Uh, Clayton's worry is that these aren't uh, actually counterexamples. He's right, they're not supposed to be counterexamples to Vogel's safety. What they are, are supposed to be, um, you know, they're supposed to tell in favor of belief safety rather than Vogel safety, because um, 
belief safety gives us the right answer on these questions and Vogel safety is silent. So unless Vogel himself wants to throw on various other conditions onto knowledge apart from safety, he's not going to be able to give us the right, uh, the right results on these cases. Okay, then um, I think there's also the separate issue, issue, and maybe we can talk about it in the Q&A because I only have seven minutes. I've probably already used six of them. Um, there's this question about how debates about vagueness intersect with debates about uh, luminosity. So you might think that the luminous wants to, or someone who's broadly a luminous wants to say, yeah, I buy the argument, um, but nonetheless, the only obstacle to luminosity are, is these uh, is vagueness, these borderline cases. I mean, this is what John proposes, although doesn't advocate for, in his PPR response to Tim. Um, and so this isn't quite the vocal safety view, but it's a, it's a similar kind of thought, which is, look, vagueness is the only obstacle. Um, and so what we have aren't, we might not have any conditions that are luminous, but we have conditions that are nonetheless cozy, where a condition is cozy, just in case it's like luminous in, in non-borderline Cases. And I think there's an open question about um, whether, in fact, any of our uh, phenomenal conditions are, in fact, cozy. I think there is reason. I mean, Tim thinks that there's reason to think they're not. But Okay, and then, uh, so then this is uh, point four, Bricker's objection to Bell Star. Right, so we've dealt with Vogel's objection to belief safety. Now, this is Bricker's objection to Bell Star. Bricker complains that Bellstar implies that it's possible for one to feel extremely hot while believing oneself to feel cold. He actually complains about something different. He complains that um, one could uh, believe oneself to feel cold even as one felt as, as hot as one would feel in the center of the sun. I find it very difficult to evaluate um, that counterfactual. But, um, but I do think, you know, Bellstar does imply that it's possible for one to feel extremely hot while believing oneself to feel cold. Uh, you know, and Berger says about this, I think we should, I have this on the handout, I think we should have serious doubts about such a case, that, serious doubts that such a case is even possible, serious doubts that there could exist a being who counts as having beliefs and experiences, and yet whose beliefs and experiences are as wildly at odds with one another as they would be. Clayton's absolutely right, the thing, the thing to say to Berger is, yeah, but look, the similarity relationship isn't transitive, right? Um, the safety condition, the belief safety condition says that is about sufficiently similar cases. So all, all that belief safety implies is that, you know, uh, sorry, all that Bell Star implies is that there's some possible distant case in which one uses a wildly different method from the one one actually uses. One's extremely hot and one feels oneself to be cold. So one uses the method of believing whatever your guru says or whatever your deranged philosophy professor says. Um, doesn't seem to me that that's a decisive objection. How am I doing? Okay, can I just explain what's on the handout, though? Okay, so for five, there's this... Um... Okay, so the, the second half of the paper uh, is, about, is about confidence, and it's about you know, what we should say on the assumption that there is a constitutive connection between the phenomenal and the doxastic, and it really comes down to these two hand-drawn graphs at the bottom of the page, page three. So here what we have is someone... The graph on the left shows um, someone gradually warming up, right? It's plotted in freezons. And the graph on the right is uh, 
is someone's uh, confidence that they feel cold. And the idea is here is that one drops below the threshold, the confidence threshold for belief, at the exact moment that one drops into, into no longer feeling cold. And this is reliable, right? So in any kind of situation like this, this kind of creature is supposed to, to drop at, at this exact moment. And the question is, in alpha I, sub i, which you'll see on the graph, at that moment, is that person in a position to know that she feels cold? Confidence safety says no, because you can't have nearby misplaced confidence of the kind that you see in A sub I plus one, whereas belief safety says yes. So only confidence safety will give us the results that uh, even constitutively connected connections, uh, conditions aren't luminous. Okay, so that's all I'll say about that. So I find myself um, uh, in sympathy with the criticisms of uh, Burke's strategy for defending uh, luminism. Um, but I wanted to see what you thought about a different sort of strategy, which appeals not to what you might call doxastic constitutivism, the view that there's a sort of constitutive or necessary connection between the phenomenon and the doxastic, but epistemic constitutivism, so the idea that there's some constitutive connection between the phenomenal and the epistemic. Um, so the idea is something like, um, whenever I'm in a phenomenal state, I've thereby got uh, reason or justification to believe I'm in it, reason good enough to put me in a position to know that I'm in it. Um, and so the thought is, what the upshot of uh, Williamson's anti-luminosity argument is that uh, in some cases, we sort of finite preachers are not able to, to take advantage of our epistemic positions, but we're nevertheless uh, in them. Um, I think this would be to take a different view from yours about, as it were, what's at issue in the anti-luminosity uh, argument. So you and Clayton express some sympathy with the idea that um, what's really important is to show that we're, we're not luminous in the sense that we're not in fact able to know that we're in phenomenal states, whatever we are. Whereas this alternative view would um, have it that, no, the, the real issue is um, whether an idealized version of myself would be in a position to know. Uh, not, not an idealized version of myself who's God, who's sort of omniscient, but rather an idealized version of myself who believes everything he has justification to believe, or everything he's, believes everything he's in a position to know. So I just wondered if, if you wanted to say a little bit more about um, uh, what you see as being at stake in the anti-luminosity argument, and why you have um, less sympathy for this sort of strategy, which um, uh, argues even if we're not luminous, idealized versions of us might be. Can you tell me, um, can you just repeat your goals on what this phenomenal epistemic condition is supposed to be? Yeah, so the, the rough idea is not whenever I'm in pain, I believe that I'm in pain, mm -hmm. or even whenever I'm in pain, I know that I'm in pain, but rather whenever I'm in pain, I have justification uh, to believe that I'm in pain, and so I'm in uh, an epistemic position to know. Uh, the rough idea is all of the purely epistemic conditions for knowledge is satisfied. Um, and then the question is, uh, is it going to be a further question whether I'm able to convert my epistemic position into knowledge, and perhaps in some cases I'm not. So I need to know more about the connection. So what does it mean? So let's take feeling cold. So you're thinking that whenever you feel cold, 
you're justified in believing you feel cold. Um, and yet you want to say that creatures like us can't always take advantage of our justification. Um, well, why would you have to say that at all? Why, why, why would you say I mean, uh, what I'm asking is why aren't you just denying straight out anti-luminosity? I mean, why aren't you? How does this... Oh. It is a denial of anti-luminosity, but the, the thought is it's a, it's a kind of um, luminosity view that doesn't look like it's impugned by Williamson's argument. So it looks like it's... So the strategy is rather than trying to defend luminosity by appealing to doxastic connections between the phenomenal and belief, appeal to epistemic connections between the phenomenal and the epistemic. And no, it looks like the, the Williamson argument doesn't do anything to sort of dislodge that. No, no, but you just wanted to... Yeah, I'm just asking a clarificatory question. When you were saying this thing about idealization. So what does it mean for us not to be able to take advantage of justification? Yes, the rough idea is, suppose you're close to the boundary, so you feel cold, but mm -hmm. there's a close case in which um, you don't feel cold. Um, and the view that I've got in mind is the feeling cold that justifies the belief that you feel cold. If you're limited, uh, like me, then... Uh, your doxastic dispositions are going to be relatively insensitive to those justifying conditions. And so even if you were to, as it were, get things to luckily believe what you have justification to believe, um, your belief wouldn't be appropriately based and so it wouldn't be justified. So the, the, the rough idea is, um, although I have justification to believe that I feel cold whenever I do, in some cases when I'm close to the boundary, I can't base my belief in the right way because I could so easily have... Um, formed a belief that's uh, not justified. And so then in what sense are you in a position to know in that case? Um, I mean, I know you yeah, want so to just yeah, stipulate, yeah. I know you want to just stipulate that all of the epistemic factors are taken care of, but the moment you say things like, you're not in a position to base your belief correctly, I'm thinking, well, not all of the epistemic factors are in place. Yeah. I mean, your belief isn't safe, right? So you're thinking that there's some other kind of condition just a justification condition, which is not a safety condition, right? Um, that is satisfied. So in that sense, you're in a position to know. I would just deny that, that's, that, that you're genuinely in a position to know in that case. Um, the thought is that so an idealized version of myself would, um, uh, perhaps this is a, a way to put the disagreement with yeah. Berker, whereas Berker tries to make the claim that uh, maybe we can hang on to luminosity by arguing that in fact there's this perfect match between the phenomenal and our doxastic dispositions. I agree with you and Clayton that that's yeah. just an implausible empirical claim. But the thought is it's not, not so implausible to think an idealized version of me would be like that. And that's not to say I'd be God, it's not to say I'd be omniscient, it's just to say my idealized self is better at basing uh, their beliefs. Sure. I mean, I, I would grant that. I just think that the luminosity, sorry, the anti-luminosity argument still or the conclusion is still right because I don't I don't take the issue to be whether or not we're gods. I take it to be whether we're like idealized such that we are, for example, sensitive. Our dispositions are sensitive enough to base reliably base correctly. Um, so I mean, in the paper at least, I'm not saying that the only way to get luminosity would for us to be godlike. I think there are, there are lots of creatures that would be just a bit better quite a bit better than us, I suppose, but well short of being gods. Um, yeah. But. 
it strikes me then that what's at issue is that if there is a point of disagreement, it might be um, how much between does us. between us yeah, exactly? Because yeah. it sounds like basically we're in a certain amount of agreement, but I think we, we might disagree about what's at stake in the in, in the anti luminosity mm -hmm. argument. So suppose Williamson can, and you know, I'm perfectly happy to grant that uh, I am in fact not. Uh, able to form justified beliefs that I'm in pain whenever I'm in pain. Um, but if it turns out there's this weaker claim that's left, um, that's not dislodged by Williamson's argument, um, the worry is that you might be able to use that in arguing against knowledge first epistemology. So at least there's this background question, how strong an anti-luminosity argument is Oh, I see. So you're not interested in the question of knowledge anymore. You're, in, in, you're interested in the question of whether we're always in position to form justified beliefs. Um, I mean, you can do it all in, in terms of knowledge, too, I think. Can we just John? Yeah, I just want to, I mean, the, 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 there's a, a justification thesis, which is whenever you're cold, it's likely on what you're in a position to know that you're cold. And you'd need supplementary arguments from, from Williamson against that. Because it might be even when you're on the edge, there's a range that for all you know you're in, and that range is mostly cold. Now, I'm not saying that's a plausible view, but the anti-luminosity argument doesn't even refute the view that whenever you're cold, you, it's likely on the evidence you're in a position to know that you're cold. So, so we, you can't run this in... Um, the justification thing isn't something he's directly argued against anyway. So you, well, you, what, what you're doing is, is doing is doing a Chalmers-like thing, except you're taking in a position to know as a complete primitive, and you're saying you're in a position to know that's got nothing to do with whether it's humanly possible to know. Mm -hmm. And the God that knows everything knows some of the things we're in a position to know and some of the things we're not in a position to know, but it's just the primitive, you know. And, uh, you know, we're not in a position to know how the planets are. We are in a position to know that's a primitive fact. It's got nothing to do with what we're physically able to know. And here's an interesting thing in connection with that primitive. God knows some of the things. I mean, that is, that's the theory you're giving us. It, it is a bit hard to evaluate it when there's an unexplained primitive distinction between the things we're in a position to know and things we aren't that's got absolutely nothing to do with our physical capacities. Anyway, that, that's how it looks from. Okay. But it, I think you can't go back and forth between the justification and the knowledge version, because yeah. the, I mean, the anti-luminosity argument isn't even an argument against the justification version, because it's compatible yeah. with it. But, yeah. well, but there is that, um, isn't that the probabilistic version of luminosity, which looks like it's... Um, the, yeah, the... the, the Looks like yeah, the, the, there is, but the, uh, yeah, so I, I, the, there are other arguments against that, but the, the arguments we're looking at aren't arguments against the thesis that whenever you're cold, it's likely on the evidence you're in a position to have that you are cold. Yeah. You, you need different arguments for this against that. So. Yeah, it's just like a, just a tiny thing that I think is in line with the thing that John just said. I just wanted to know whether you were saying something more than something like, let's imagine a creature who perfectly well track these sorts of things uh, in the sense at issue. Would that creature be luminous? But then you're kind of just saying, let's imagine a luminous creature, and is that is that creature? It feels like that's the starting point. It's like, imagine a me, but a me who you know, perfectly well tracked all these things epistemically. Would that creature be luminous? Well, well you just set it up so that he was. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, I, what I'd be inclined to say is the question is whether that creature is an interest, whether that creature is an idealization of me in some interesting sense of mm -hmm. idealization. And, and that, I think the answer to that question is not obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's an interesting question to know how much we'd have to change about ourselves to be luminous. So it's interesting in that sense. Um, but I take it that, I mean, part of the point of the paper is that I think Tim is really responding to quite, you know, to empirical considerations about the kind of creatures we are, um, and not idealized versions of ourselves. And I think it's because he sort of thinks that the the kind of coarse crane dispositions that are, you know, really at issue here um, are deep facts about ourselves. They aren't these just kind of trivial things that we could just make an effort and get over. They're, right. So it's not. I mean, it's idealized. But idealized can cover all sort of a manner of sins, right? So there's the idealized, like if you were just, if you just worked a bit harder and only cared about feeling how, thinking about how cold you were and whatever, maybe you could get into this position where it was luminous. It's like, no, 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 that's not true. The person's not going to look like you. He's going to have, I mean, it's not going to look like any creature we know about, right? You might think it's not even a, a creature, like a carbon-based mammal. I mean, you know, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was pretty convinced by the arguments uh, for belief safety or against the objections to belief safety, but not for confidence safety. And actually, confidence safety, I mean, I don't want to take a strong stance, but it seems, strikes me as a bit implausible. So, I mean, a couple of things here. So, one is the glass half full case struck yeah. me as a bit of a straw man where you've got your, uh, as the glass is filled from zero to full, your credence uh, that the glass is at least half empty just increases linearly. Trick me is like that's, yeah, as you say, kind of not at all a perfect calibration situation. But it seems like there's a not wildly unrealistic and much better case that I want to be able to see what, what to say about, which is where you're, you know, you've got like sort of, you know, graphing the degree to which the glass is full against your credence that the glass is at least half full. It's kind of like S-shaped, right? So it, you know, it's pretty low for a while, and then as, as it kind of gets close to being half full, your confidence like shoots up and then tapers off at a high point when it's pretty full. Now, I mean, I wasn't sure, like, I mean, intuitively that looks like a pretty good way to be. It's a question of whether it counts as knowledge, uh, you know, when you're kind of close to the cutoff point between half full and not half full, or not at least half full. Um, I mean, you said something about, like, you know, there's a, a picture on which there's a relationship between confidence and practical reasoning where your confidence in a proposition P is a measure of your willingness to rely on P as a premise in practical reasoning so that like, you know, at least even when you're, you know, there, there are cases where even you know, the glass isn't at least half full, but you're disposed to a good degree to use the premise that it's at least half full as a premise in practical reasoning. I thought that just very few people were going to hold on to this picture of the relationship between confidence and a willingness to use it as a premise in practical reasoning. So sometimes people distinguish between like degrees of belief in the sense of like credences, um, you know, they're connected somehow to like betting dispositions or something. Uh, maybe not a constitutive connection, but it's a way to get a grip on it. So they distinguish degrees of belief or credences from like, Tim sometimes talks about degrees of outright belief. So the picture would be like, if you've got 0.75 credence in P, that doesn't mean like 75% of the time you're willing to just take P for granted and use it as a premise. It just means like, 
and you know bet on bet at like three fourths odds or something. Um, so I mean, if 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 the Burker move was to understand this graph as like graphing your credence, it struck me as that that just wouldn't be like an argument that you wouldn't know uh, at the you know the near cases. So the question is basically like, what about the S-shaped curve, uh, and what's the actual like, argument that in the cases near the cutoff you you wouldn't count as known? I do agree. We're supposing that at the point where the condition becomes true, your credence tips above the, the belief threshold. It's interesting, I think, uh, to say is that we're not actually talking about credences here. We're talking about something distinct, which is confidences, which are degrees of outright belief. Um, at least that's what Tim takes the argument to be about. He's very explicit about that. Okay, so I thought Salim at least was talking about credences. No, he's also talking about confidences. I think confidence, okay, I mean, what is, so, what is the term that he uses? Confidence. And he has a footnote where he says, I'm using this in the Williamsonian way, which is supposed to be degrees of outright belief. It's not credences. Okay. You, you know, the idea of confidences is uh, confidence is a willingness to rely on a proposition in practical uh -huh. reasoning. Um, and what happens is you get above a certain kind of threshold for confidence, and that counts as belief. So that's the picture, okay. right? That's the picture that both Tim and Bricker are okay. working with. Okay. So that's the first thing to say. About the linear case thing, yeah, I mean, it's not my straw man, it's Brooker's straw man. So like, these are two separate, right? So, yeah, I mean, so okay, might, yeah. these are two different questions, right? So there's the first question about, so, so Brooker has two arguments of against confidence safety, right? So the first argument is a really bad one, right? Which is just that, um, take a graph where, which is more or less linear, where, the, where your um, confidence uh, that the glass is, uh, let's say the glass is at least half full, um, increases in a linear way with the you know the the fullness of the glass, and so the, at the moment that the glass becomes exactly at least half full, you're at 0.5 confidence, and we're going to just stipulate that 0.5 confidence is uh, the threshold for belief, and that's what's going to give you that penumbral connection. Um, and his first argument is, well, that's a perfect calibration situation, and uh, confidence safety predicts that it's not, and he says, and uh, Stu Cohen says a similar thing. He says, how, how could this, how could this possibly be a good condition on knowledge? How could this be a proper reliability connection? You couldn't be any more reliable than having this linear relationship between your confidence and uh, you know the and how full the glass is. Um, but they're just being deceived by the graph because if you. Think about it, like, so with this guy, Henry, who's watching a glass slowly fill, you know, this is a guy who has a 25% confidence that the glass is at least half full when the glass is only a quarter full. I mean, you guys wouldn't even have that kind of confidence assuming the glass is big enough, right? I mean, yeah. there's no way in which this is a maximally reliable profile. So that's the first thing. That's why I have the linear supposition. It's just to dismit, you know, dispatch with the argument that, the, the Bricker's bad argument, which is that, um, confidence safety uh, calls unreliable something that's maximally reliable. But then there's this distinct question, right? And this is your, your main point, which is, and it, and it doesn't actually matter if it's an S-curve or it's linear. What's really important, but we'll grant you it's an S-curve. What's really important is, so take feeling cold. So look at the two graphs on, um, on the page. So here we have, and if you want, you can make this more S-like. So you can make it sort of flatter at the top, dropping down quite precipitously. Um, 
to hit that point, and then and then uh, smoothing out near near the bottom, right? So the question here is. Is this person in a position to know in case alpha i uh, that she feels cold? It's true that she feels cold. Um, there are no sufficiently similar cases in which she uh, believes she feels cold and doesn't believe she feels cold, and that's because we have this. We're assuming this constitutive connection. And confidence safety says, or so, and belief safety, of course, says uh, yes, she does know, right? Um, because she has known false beliefs in various insufficiently similar cases, but confidence safety says she doesn't know, and she doesn't know because in this very similar case, A sub I plus one, she has a high misplaced confidence. That's what Tim wants to say, misplaced confidence. And so I think it's really hard to say what the correct intuition should be here. So I think if you buy wholesale Tim's view about how confidence is working as confidence is being a willingness to rely uh, on um, premises on propositions uh, in practical reasoning, you know, then I think it's it's much easier to get his verdict, which is that the confidence safety verdict, right? Because if it like, you know, so here the the cutoff, the confidence threshold for outright belief is 0.8, but we can, you know, basically this person has a 0.79 confidence that she's uh, not cold. Um, or that she feels cold when she's not. And if you think that means something like she has a 0.79, you know, willingness to rely on the proposition that she feels cold and like, you know, which means that she's like goes out and gets a sweater when she's not feeling cold, right? I mean, then then you might think that that actually does undermine her claim to know in that case. I think it's hard to evaluate the I mean, I've given two other cases, right? So I also give this receding fake Barnes case. Right? So in this case, so Mira is looking at two rows of what look like barns in the distance. Uh, the first row is made up of real barns. The second row is fake. In situations like this, Mira reliably forms only true beliefs, only the true belief that she's seeing real barns. The threshold for outright belief is 70% confidence. Of the first row, Mira believes with 70% confidence that it is made up of barns, right? So she has a true belief. Um, of the second row, Mira believes with 69% confidence that it's made up of barns. And the idea is that Mira does this in all like nearby cases, right? So she really reliably um, has a confidence that's only high enough for belief that she's seeing barns when in fact they are barns, but she has a really high confidence just short of belief uh, that she's seeing barns when she's not seeing barns. So I think that's, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say really about these cases. I mean, I think receding fake barns, I get the strong intuition that she doesn't know that she's seeing real barns. Um, of course, this isn't a plausible case of constitutive connection. So you might think, okay, like forget about these cases because they're so gerrymandered and weird. Go back to like the feeling cold case and take seriously the idea that there's a constitutive connection between feeling cold and believing you feel cold and then ask whether confidence safety uh, gives us the right verdict. In part, I don't know what to say because I don't really know what these constitutive connection views are supposed to be, and there's no kind of universal view about what they are. Um, if it's a res just a pure response-dependent view on which, like, feeling cold just is believing you feel cold, uh, which is very implausible for other reasons, um, then you, I think, I find it easier to get the result that she does know, but the the view is so implausible. If instead it's a view on which the uh, the phenomenal condition is in part a constituent of the belief, then I think I don't get uh, the same intuition 
So I get, I mean, I get the confidence, safety, intuition, um, but of course the, the case is more plausible. I mean, oh, sorry, I just want to say one more thing. I think another place you could push, though, is to say, look, this picture on which confidence is uh, this willingness to rely and belief just is a certain threshold of confidence. I mean, you could, I think you could push that by saying, look, it's very important for Tim's view about confidence and the relationship to belief that nothing special happens when you cross the threshold into belief, right? You don't, like, take the proposition and put it in your belief box, right? Um, because if you did that, then it would be, I think, very intuitive to say that people do know in these cases, right, in the A sub I cases, alpha sub I cases. Um, so Tim wants to resist that, right? But if you resist that, and you don't think there's anything special that happens when we cross over into, the, over into belief, there's no putting the proposition in the belief box, then I think it's harder to make sense of what the constitutive connection view is, because something is magical, sort of, supposed to happen when you outright believe on the constitutive connection view, right? There's something special going on. So that's another way that I think the, the luminous could defend, could defend the view. I mean, so uh, maybe I don't want to take too much time to don't need to maybe respond. I mean... I do think, uh, so yeah, I mean, if Berker's talking about degrees of outright belief, then my credence-based thing doesn't, doesn't apply. I mean, one thing is I sort of don't understand what degrees of outright belief are. Just, at least it seems weird to think of these as coming in a scale with numbers attached. But like, so, I mean, suppose you had a credence view where like the credence did the S-shaped thing and cross, I mean, you can try to threshold accounts for credences and beliefs don't seem terribly plausible, but I mean, that seems like a bit, um, yeah, again, I'm going to, uh, yeah, and especially if you had a picture where, like, you know, outright belief, where there's just belief and not belief. So when your credence abo reaches above a threshold, so it counts as belief, uh, then you're just totally disposed to use it as a premise of reasoning. It's, maybe that's a bit more more like your um, belief boxy kind of view. But, I mean, it seems like something that's worth a view that's worth considering. I think John has a follow-up. So it might help to look at cases where the constitutive connection is on mysterious and run. So supposing the, the threshold is 0.8, then there's obviously a constitutive connection for believing that you are at least 0.8. You have a 0.8 degree of outright belief in something because to outright believe it suffices for the truth of the thing. Because to outright believe it, you've got to be at least 0.8, but then that verifies. And you could compatibly with that tell a story about someone that, you know, isn't that good at telling whether they're 0.8 or 0.79. And, you know, when they drop to being 0.79, that they are at least 0.8 and something, that there might be nothing that they're that, that willing to that, have okay. that confidence in. Yeah. And, you know, when I run that, it's just totally obvious. Yeah. I don't know. But this is in terms of out, degrees of outright belief. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I still want a story about like what these are. Is, I, I mean, no, the no, 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 no. I, mean, I, I know there's that okay. worry. I'm just saying. But at least, what, if you, if you understood the ideology, yeah. th that's at least a case where uh -huh. we can we can tell us if you buy the ideology, the the, mm. the constitutiveness is completely straightforward okay. yeah. there. So yeah. it's it's a bit easier to think about. We could easily tell a story where there's a constitutive connection, but something like, you know, confident star still holds, and then run the thing on that, and, you know. Mm -hmm. we... yeah. Question, sure. Um, so this is a question about the dialectic and just how destabilizing the argument is. 
Um, Which argument? Uh, the anti-human right. therapy. So, oh, right. So yeah, just a big picture question. Um, I was wondering if uh, it turned out that so we're not luminous, uh, but our mental states are more luminous than, say, our knowledge. So more often we're uh, in a state where we know what our mental states are than when we know what our knowledge is. Then do you think that this would um, sort of stabilize some of the motivations for using mental states as evidence and to play the kinds of roles that people wanted them to play? Yeah, I mean, so there's a really good question here about just what is the sort of Cartesian worldview supposed to be doing for us um, in philosophy, not, you know, in life. Uh, and how much of that can we salvage by retreating to some kind of more modified position about luminosity where we say, uh, well, it's not luminous, simpliciter, but it's sort of certain mental phenomenal states are more luminous than other kind of states, including sort of factive mental states like what might be a factive mental state, knowledge. Um, so, I mean, one, what, one point to make is that, you know, once we've given up on luminosity, simpliciter, then it becomes a sort of open empirical, in part empirical question, which states are um, more luminous than others. It's not obviously a question we can always settle from the armchair. Uh, so just because, I mean, we might have some kind of armchair prejudices or hunches about which states are going to be more luminous than others, but it's not clear. And without actually sort of taking stock of those issues, you, I don't think if you're a defender of the luminous or you want to use your lumin luminosity in your theory or something like quasi-luminosity in your theory, you should just keep on going as you were before, right? Um, and then, okay, so but then there's this question about... Yeah, if yeah. empirically it turned out... Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. So what... Okay, so I'm interested in luminosity, or rather anti-luminosity, because of uh, its role in normative theory. So lots of areas of, um, or lots of people in, in both epistemology and ethics, when they undertake the project of formulating norms, uh, do so with the aid of conditions that they take to be luminous, right? Um, so... Epistemic, certain kinds of epistemic internalists are a good example of this, right? And 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 ethical subjectivists are a good example of this in ethics. Um, and they need these luminous conditions. They or they need the, the you know the triggering conditions of their norms to be luminous, you know, to give them something else that they want, something like what they might call followability or action guidance or you know these kind of things. And I think it's just an open question whether they would. I mean, they wouldn't get that, obviously, right? I mean, they wouldn't get perfect followability, and they wouldn't get perfect uh, action guidance um, if they gave up on total luminosity. I mean, one feature is that theories that you used to think were, in principle, different from other theories. So we used to think, or you know, common to think that there's some kind of principle distinction between internalism and externalism in epistemology. One way of drawing that distinction is to say internalists think that justification supervenes on um, states that are transparent, meaning luminous and absent luminous, and externalists don't. Um, but then, once you've given up on luminosity, 
then actually it turns out there's no such thing as internalism as we've just defined it. Everyone's an externalist. Now that there's this question about how happy internalists would be to find out that they're actually externalists, I mean, I think that's again an empirical question that we can't ask, answer from the, from the armchair. But that's one case in which I think it's not obvious that you're going to get everything you hoped for by just um, retreating to this kind of more modified position. But did you have some other thing in mind? Well, yes, I wasn't thinking that they would necessarily be happy about it or there wouldn't be right. any sort of cost. I guess I was thinking if you started from the point of view that the you know mental states being luminous was a good reason to have them play these roles, mm -hmm. and then you find out, you know, via this argument that they're not luminous. But then it turned out that they were the most luminous mm -hmm. thing that we had, or more luminous than knowledge, then would that at least be a reason to prefer these uh, states as playing these roles, having them play these roles, rather than knowledge? Yeah. No. I mean, it depends. I mean, so... There's this general question about like you you want something and you, you want it all and like it's not it's not clear whether some some quasi version of it is going to do the job or not right from the outside it depends exactly what the job is so if the job was um, to get say epistemic norms that were just going to better accommodate our internalistic intuitions say then yeah quasi luminosity is going to give that to you on the assumptions that the internalist conditions are in fact more lum more luminous than the externalist ones. But if the goal was to create norms that you know people were always in a position to follow, right? Norms that people you know always knew whether they were violating them or not, then it turns out you can't have maybe that. Maybe norms yeah. that were most often in a yeah. So it depends. Yeah, like exactly. That. So maybe you settle for yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're probably settling positions. But I, I imagine that luminosity is used in all sorts of other kind of areas too. So I think it would be a sort of a piecemeal question about about function, yeah. It's also, I'm not quite sure what you mean by like most often easy to follow. I mean, you've sort of been, I know you guys are just loosely saying this thing, but it's sort of hard to know what. Yeah. I just thought of a few candidates while you were saying that they don't seem to go, you know. It's, like, it's a hard thing to say. I mean, you'd have to do something weird. I mean, you'd probably have to like. You don't want to count cases, right? I mean, well, <laughs> well, I mean, right. I mean, so here's the, here's the theoretical operation that you would do is you divide up cases in some kind of uniform way, and then you probably want to weight them for something like um, salience or nearbyness or importance or whatever, and then you add, multiply, you know, you do the math, um, and then you get some score, which is how luminous uh, a, a condition is. But we, we, in fact, don't want to undertake that project, or at least, yeah. yeah. I mean, also, not even on any measure, it doesn't seem like all mental states are going to be like equally luminous, right? So. I mean, there's worries about setting, like, so, so take just the evidence role, like, it'd be weird to just, for one thing, set a threshold of, like, how luminous something has to be to count as, like, evidence, because you're, you're, you know, distinguishing pretty nearby cases, like, and also, um, yeah, not all, not all mental states are going to be alike in terms of how luminous they are, so it'd be kind of odd. And lots but, of external states might turn out to be more. Yeah, more yeah, ones. yeah, I think, like, yeah, Yeah, so I'm so uh, like Brian, I have a hard time with the willingness to use uh, as a premise and degrees of uh, outright belief. So maybe you can help me. So maybe one way of saying this, like suppose that the uh, the willingness diminishes in in the way that uh, when you are below the threshold, like a plus one, you you're going to use the premise in reasoning. But only in reasoning where 
a weaker premise would have done just well, like the premise that I'm almost called. And, uh, and so you, you sort of, and then uh, much lower down you will use the premise, you will use the premise only for reasonings where a much weaker premise would go on. And this would look like a good calibration of your reasoning dispositions. So, is it even hmm? so, that you in fact use those weaker premises or that you could have? Well, I'm not clear what the willingness is, but let's say that what's happening is that, uh, yeah, if, if ever you use the premise in reasoning, you're using it for reasoning where a suitably weaker premise uh, would have done just as well. So you could help me by saying to me how the, this degree of outright belief below outright belief goes that's different from the picture that I've So here's, the, well, let, let's make it like a very simple picture. You, you, are, uh, you are below the, the threshold for belief. You are still using the premise in some reasonings. Uh, and to answer some questions that come up, but in fact only once where you could have used the weaker premise. And then if, if somebody asks you, for instance, uh, do, you, uh, do you feel cold, then you will not use the premise. But if somebody asks you, uh, are you pretty close to feel cold, then you will use the premise and say yes. So you will go through some reasoning like, I feel cold, therefore I'm pretty close to feel cold. Oh, so that sounds bad to me, right? So. I mean, it would be fine if you were using different premises in, in these nearby cases. So if you're using the true premise that I feel almost cold or I almost feel cold, that sounds good. But you're thinking the person says, I feel cold, therefore it's, what, it's true that I nearly feel cold. So, I mean, so does willingness to use the premise, does, does this amount to that? Like, does this mean that if you are just below belief threshold, you have enough willingness to use as a premise so that there is a counterfactual case where you actually use it as a premise? And in that counterfactual case, it's a false premise. So that's enough to... Yeah, I mean, so, right, so there's some idea that you're, there's a willing... Oh, I should just say that I don't know much about how Tim's actually thinking about these things. So, and I don't have a clear sense of exactly how they're supposed to work. Um, but yeah, so I think the thought is that you have a willingness, which is going to be expressed in some kind of modal way. It's not, it's not just that there's a case, right? Because it seems like knowing... So if, imagine that if your confidence dropped down precipitously at that precise moment. So it went from, whatever, like 0.8 above the threshold, um, and then in that moment went way down to 0.25 confidence. I mean, your, your willingness, your 0.25 willingness to use the premise um, in practical reasoning, I take it doesn't do anything to um, undermine your knowledge, the safety of your belief in the, in the good case, in the alpha i case. Well, that's not even clear to me. I mean, so 0.2 willingness, does that mean that there is a you know, relevant possible case where you actually reason with people, where you're like, oh, well, I'm called, therefore. Yeah, I mean, it might not be that, you know, you're actually, like, reasoning in this way, right? It might just be that you, you're, you're really taxed um, 
you have to make a lot of quick decisions. There's some really unimportant decision that needs to be made, and you just, you know, you're in the middle of doing some kind of really important philosophy paper. Someone's handing around blankets. You just, like, take one. You know, you don't bother to to go through some sort of sophisticated intellectual process. Um, I'm thinking that's kind of Tim's picture. I mean, maybe John has something more to say about this. I was thinking about something else. Do you have something more to say about the ideology of confidences? But so suppose it's, uh, so suppose it's the, say, the stuff that you just say. So yeah. the, like some questions come up and you basically act as if, uh, act as you would if you were reasoning on, on the premise. And suppose that in fact it's, uh, what's going on is that you only do that on questions where a weaker premise would have would have been okay. So when you when you go below the threshold yeah. of the feeling call, then you're still uh, you know answering questions as you would answer them uh, if you were believing that you feel called. Uh, but only the questions where it would have been just as fine. I mean, you would have given the same answer on the belief that you're close to feeling called. So if the disposition moved that way, then it seems fine. No? You think you know in the case? Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, what's wrong with this kind of disposition? It's basically, I mean, it's even hard to make this case apart from one where you, you're using the premise that you feel cold, and then you're using the premise that you're close to feeling cold, which is true as well, and then you're using the premise that you're close to close to feel cold, which is true as well, and so on. And so you're thinking... And you're not making any claims about what kind of premise they're actually using. Uh, yeah, because I'm not sure like what's going on in the blanket case, for instance. So is the person using the premise P or not? Or? Yeah, I think in, in, in some in some sense they're using it. Yeah, so in that sense. <laughs> so you're just thinking it's unproblematic. And so in John's case about your point eight. I didn't get a case exactly. Ah, so the case, so. the case, John's case is supposed to be like here's here's a unmysterious kind of constitutive connection. So the proposition is um, that you that you have a confidence of at least point eight. That's the proposition. In something. In something. In in, in some other proposition. Um. So obviously that's. That's true, and I mean, there's this constitutive. So if you point eight in it, it's true. Yeah. That's, yeah. If you point eight or above in it, it's true. That's the constitutive connection. So that's what I think. So what's the idea? It's like you have and the not right point eight is the threshold for yes, yes. believing. Yeah, that's the key thing. Right? So whenever you believe it. Uh, Sorry, I'm just not following what it is. So if, if you believe that you have a point eight confidence. It's basically, if it's a rough, believe it's a rough believe if you believe you believe something, you can't yeah. fail to be right. right. Also, the idea is like if, if you believe that you have a point eight confidence that P, then you have a point eight confidence that P. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. because yeah. assuming that yeah. the threshold for belief is point eight. Not in P, but it's just like in yeah. something. Yeah. No. So if you believe that ah, you have yeah. point eight something, it's, it's, a, it's an existentially yeah. quantified. Okay, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, so, and so what about in the case where um, you have a 0.79 confidence that you have a 0.8 confidence in something, but let's just stipulate it's not true. It's, it's obviously not true in virtue of that belief, but it's not true in virtue of other beliefs. Um, do you get to know 
in the 0.8 case. We got a 79% confidence that in this proposition that's not true. But if you... It's, the question still stands, right? What, what does it mean that you have the 7.9? I mean, that's the whole... The yeah, it seems to me like, I mean, I have to process it, but uh, I, I mean, I guess I would go, I mean, I would try a similar line. Like, what does it mean? It means that you are willing to use the premise that you are at least pointed in something only for purposes where the premise that you are only 0.79 in something uh, would have been good enough. No. So you are not doing something. No, you're, you're going to use it in cases in which. It makes a difference whether it's yeah. actually point eight point nine. Okay, yes. So, yeah, if, if that's the picture, yeah. then yeah, I can yeah. See. But I mean, I still think there's outstanding questions about what's going on in the in the confidence. In this idea it's a bit like ask, trying to get a scale of how much do you like salad. Where, you know, there are so many parameters. <laughs> you know, you might love chicken salad, but you know, it's got to be chicken salad. But you know, it, the arrest make you gag. You might only love salad in the morning, and then to try and take all these parameters and stick, get a scale for how much someone likes salad. It's 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 a simple it's a simplification. All he's doing is simplifying, making an analogous simplification. <coughs> Yeah, but, I mean, but it is a simplification, trying to get a mess like that and get a numerical scale out of it. And it's a similar sort of challenge. I mean, well, one thing to do is like think about the original presentation of the case where Tim explicitly talks about confidences, right? So he's imagining this, this, this woman, person, one, he says one, actually, sorry, um, who's getting gradually warmer. And he says that, you know, she's really confident at the beginning of the day that she's cold and her confidence gradually diminishes and then she's extremely confident by the end of the day or the afternoon or whatever it is um, that she is not cold. So one question is, how are you reading the confidence, the confidences in, in the original, in the original setup? Yes. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is not an objection to you, but like, it strikes me as a bit like, I think confidence is a bad term for like degree of outright belief. Just, I mean, intuitively I can say like, you know, I'm more confident that, uh, the moon is made of green cheese than I am that it's made of like, uh, you know, green cheese of a specific variety, right? But of course, I have like, you know, there's zero sense in which I'm like at all disposed to use either thing as a premise in any reasoning, right? I mean, they could be quite far out. I'm willing to use the first thing, I would hope, then. As a premise in reasoning, really? More willing. More willing. I didn't say you should be I would think that there are no. <laughs> no possibility thinking that way. Like you're not willing at all in that. Case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but I think it's, it, I still think. I, I mean, so, I. I'm but you want to say that you're comp you have some. You're right. More I, I mean, it's just. I mean, it's like yeah, it's a purely terminological point. But I think like the term confidence more naturally suggests credence or degree of yeah. belief than degree of outright belief. So I, I, I just it doesn't mean that like you know it to be really. You know, it'd always be better as far as pumping intuitions about sort of cases to not use the term confidence because I think it, I don't know. There's some premises yeah. that I would be quite happy to like uh, go on for if it's understood like one way but not the other. Right. And, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing you could do is decouple the relationship between confidence and. I mean, so you, you could think that what's going on in the, in like the cases, um, in the cold morning cases someone's credence is moving in a particular kind of way. Um, and that's how you're reading confidence. Yeah. And then if you were asked about the person's willingness to rely on uh, 
the premise, then it's going to look, um, it's going to be jumpy, say. So you might, you might think that once you get above, um, you have to be well above the belief threshold mm-hmm. to, to, you know, to be willing to rely on it at all. Yeah. I mean, like that might be the kind of picture. Continuous. Like, maybe it's still continuous, but it's like quite, uh, yeah, well, continu- sort of continuousness is, is not good for confidence safety, right? So any continuousness is going to... I, I was thinking of a yeah, way of keeping confidence... Yeah, so I was thinking of a way of right. keeping confidence safety, oh, but having, having the conclusion, you just say, look, this is the wrong description of a person's confidences. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that, I take it again, that's a, an empirical, that's a quasi-empirical question. Right. So just was a quick question for you. Why do, how can you think you have a better handle on uh, having a higher credence in one of those moon propositions than the other, but not having higher confidence in one of the other? I mean, Wait, I feel like sorry, I, I, I was when I was thinking. I I was thinking the claim was just that I think the term confidence more naturally suggests so, like credence or degree of belief than degree of outright belief understood as willingness to use it as a premise. Because I'm more confident that the yeah, say the moon is that the moon is made of. Uh, green cheese than it's than that it's made of like green cheese from France or something. But um, yeah, but why do you have any confidence, right? Because the comparatives don't necessarily have to relate in the right way with uh, the non-comparative form of the okay. So you know that I'm more confident that mood is made out of green cheese than out of a variety of green cheese does not imply that I'm confident at all in either. Well, I'm, um, yeah, I'm certainly not. Confident <laughs> of either, but I thought I thought the degrees of, I mean, I, I was just the degree to which I'm confident that the green mean when it's made of then, okay. Wait, I was just oh, pushing right, the right. thought that right. whatever, however you're getting a handle on the on the credency thing is 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 a similar way you're going to have to get a handle on the competency competency thing. So, I mean, you understand having more credence, having more confidence where that's understood in terms of degree of belief. So somehow you're getting a handle on that. So why couldn't that be translated to the other case? I mean, one is kind of a betting thing and one is a willingness to act thing, but in either way you can somehow track more willingness and, you know. Yeah, but like, I mean, the betting... They're both some kinds of actions in some range of counterfactual cases. Well, the betting thing needn't be... I mean, that could be. That, I mean, that could also just be affected by your preference ordering. Um, Can I cut this one off? <laughs> we have two more questions now, in about five minutes. So, Jeff. Uh, so, I was just wondering how strong a claim luminosity is. So, I'm a way of getting at it. So, so as it happens. Um, Everybody who's ever been in the condition of being proclaimed to by a glorious choir of angels has known that was happening. Um, and, and in fact... Well, um, someone give me that. Um, it's impossible. Oh, I thought it was trivial. Oh, I was thinking... I was thinking yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, no, I mean, maybe that's vacuously true, but it's yeah. true. Um, also, I was thinking that there are, there are uh, metaphysically possible worlds in which... There's kind of you know borderline cases of glorious choirs of angels um, making proclamations, and so there are metaphysically possible worlds in which somebody is pro- thus thus proclaimed to and doesn't know it, um, right? Is, wait, why is, why is this sounding so weird to people? I was thinking this is how is it meta- so? You're thinking it's metaphysically possible for someone to be proclaimed to. By glorious choir of angels. You're just spotting yourself that. Wait, why did this not? Why would you think this is impossible? Surely there could be one that's a little off key, though. That's the idea, right? I mean, the, the point does not have to do with angels. Can we just go for something that, like, everyone 
Things is possible here. Why would you think angels are impossible? Metaphysically impossible, really? Isn't it the same well, reason Kripke thinks that like, both, like, unicorns species are species and oh, types? No, like, angels like, like unicorns. Anyway, angelic beings. Not genetic species. That's nice to get unicorns, even if you can't get unicorns. So, so maybe maybe we'll talk about schmangels instead of angels. But, but it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> that um, you can do it with feeling cold. Yeah, if, if in that. fact everyone in the past has known. Can we just do it with the about feeling something that we all can get a grip on here? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting this one. No talk of angels through a religious epistemology <laughs> conference. <laughs> I thought it was fun, but uh, anyway, the no, point but, is. But, 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 so 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 the point is just should I think of I mean and and also suppose the way that things work it's metaphysically possible but also. So all of the cases like that are pretty different from the actual world. Mm -hmm. um, so, which I think you all agree with that part anyway. Um, <laughs> um, I was, I was so just the mere metaphysical possibility there, is that supposed to make the condition non-luminous um, or not? It's, okay. And, Can we just get up? Clear on the setup. I'm, I'm not sure I got everything there. So, um, we're, it's metaphys metaphysically. Possible. There's a possible world in which angels. Somebody's in the condition and doesn't know it. And okay, can you just spell that out a bit? So they're in the condition, and it's a borderline case of that condition because they're not sure if they're angels or just cleverly dressed mules. I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Mule angels, right? Okay. Yeah, the, the, the point was just like so. So there are certain conditions where uh, actually uh, nobody is ever in them without knowing it just because they're rare or whatever. Um, but are, it's possible to be in the condition and not know that you're in it. Um, and also, uh, those possibilities are pretty different from the way, way the actual world is. And so one thought is that the possibility makes for a non-luminous condition. Another thought is the distance of those possibilities means that you know, the right reading of whenever means that these still count as luminous. I'm just not sure how to... I'm not sure confused about, about the case, right. So you're taking it that in the actual world, some people are sung to, proclaimed to by angels. It's, it's happened at most a couple of times. Okay, so that's the idea. Okay, so here are our assumptions. It's happened a couple of times, and you're asking, you, oh, I see. So you're thinking it happened and they've known, right, because they were in determinate cases of um, angels singing to them. And, uh, but there's this really remote possibility of being in a borderline case of it. Um, and does that is that enough to make it? Yeah, this is all I was trying to get at. Right, it's a pretty right. simple question about what, how to think about what luminosity, uh, what the what the modal force of whenever is in the right. luminosity condition. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm thinking that's not a not a luminous condition. I see. But its non-luminosity might not be super interesting. I see. Um, this is sort of okay, so you're, you're, to some of these things that were coming up from Charity's question yeah. about, like, supposedly, you know, got things which are kind of normally when you're in it, you know, you're in it. That sort but, of thing. but what's the force of normally here? So you mean in sort of look, big okay, because feeling cold, it's like normally when there's one sense of normally in which normally when you feel cold, you're in a position to know it. But the cases, the borderline cases of feeling cold are also very normal, right? They're just proportionately fewer, or something like that. De Assuming some kind of normal. I was thinking just less normal, but fewer. But uh... <laughs> borderline. I'm like in a borderline case of feeling really hot right now. Like I mean, it's you know, the, the, I don't think these are abnormal cases. But you're thinking of a different kind. Of, but you're thinking of you're thinking of a case of 
the kind of condition where whenever we're... Um, the, the cases in all of the nearby cases in which we're in it, um, there are no nearby ca- conditions. There are no nearby cases uh, that are borderline cases. Is that the thought? Yeah. And then should we say that the conditions luminous? Yeah, and it's, I mean, that was just a terminological question, really. Yeah. But it helps me to get a better sense of what exactly is it we talked about. Yeah, I mean, it's. Look, I mean, it's un- it's definitely unclear, at least in knowledge and its limits, what Tim Tim thinks about this. Um, I mean, I try and say that what we're talking about are creatures like it, us and conditions we could possibly be in. Um, I don't know what that. I, I take it that plausibly doesn't answer your question. Um, I mean, I. The angels' case is again kind of hard for hard for me to. Don't roll your eyes. I mean, this is like I'm saying it's hard for me to evaluate. Yeah, you know. Sorry. Mason, do you have a follow-up question or a new question? It was a it was a bit relate. Well, no, no, go. We could just end on whatever that is. Yeah. No, we're out of time. It was a bit. It was a bit related to heaven, a bit to the idealization bits. That I was thinking. Take for any condition. For any condition, let's call the iterated. There's a condition star, which is the iterated version of the condition of, of being in the condition of knowing you're in the original condition and knowing that you're knowing you're in it and knowing that you're knowing you're in it. So there's the, the condition of being in iterated pain is yeah. being in pain and knowing you're in it and knowing you're in it. Now, assuming a bit of closure that I'm... Yeah, if you're in iterated pain, then you're in a position to know you're in iterated pain. Because if, you, if you're in iterated pain, then you know you know you're in pain, so you know that satisfy the first bit and so on. So um, it looks like iterated pain is yeah. luminous. Then I was remem- vaguely remembering some of these models Tim plays with is sort of like, how, you know, how the extra Ks get piled up. It might be, if this is the cutoff for pain, then five sadons up, you get to know you know, and then seven and a half sadons up, you get to know you know you know, and then nine and a half, you know, you zeno it on up, as it were. We've got to idealize to actually forming the beliefs, but in terms of what you know. So it looks like, you know, if you're, you don't even have to be in, ha- you know, if, if it really, really sucks, then you, as it were, idealizing away from our incapacity to form the beliefs, you are in a position to to have iterated yeah. pain. And I was just yeah. wondering then, you know, how does this interact with the? I mean, it's 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 a more realistic version of the of the heaven point. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I think Tim doesn't want to go because he wants. Sorry, no, we're done. But he, you know, when he talks about. Uh, this notion of in a position to know, he wants to say it's something more than psychological possibility, right? So you couldn't simply respond to that by saying, yeah, but in fact we couldn't form um, these kind kind of many beliefs. I don't think that's a good response because he wants it to be somewhere between kind of psychological, something more than psychological possibility, something a lot less than metaphysical possibility. Um, But that's good. Iterated pain. Yeah.